So when do you find yourself coming to Dagenham Park then? Oh, I come here anytime that I'm not working. I come here. It's a place that is, a, you know, a ten-minute walk or a five-minute run from from my house. And when I come here, I can feel my heart rate decrease. And uh, yeah, it's a just a beautiful space to to have clarity of thought and yeah, to clear my head and breathe. It's a bit of a patchwork of natural and planted woodland here. So we've got these meadows and we've got the oak. Uh, and over there we've got um, a Californian redwood tree, which is clearly, clearly planted, an ornamental plant for those who lived, um, lived here when it was a manor house. But uh, where we're heading to later on in our walk, there's remnants of old ancient woodland. And there's evidence for that in that we've got uh, in the spring, there's a, a blanket of bluebells, absolutely beautiful, and, and wild garlic. It's so nice because we are literally 10 minutes off the A12 as well. And yeah. you're just in this beautiful parkland in the middle of London. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a stag over there, look. You see? Oh, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. <laughs> Sitting down with its thorns and its... Oh, it's got that. its little oh, harem. Look at that tiny fawn. Tiny baby. Hello, I'm Liv Bolton, and you're listening to The Outdoors Fix, a podcast to inspire you to make the outdoors a bigger part of your life. Firstly, welcome back. This is the start of series eight, so thank you for sticking with me and for listening since 2019. I'm so excited about this series. I'm in the Yorkshire Wolds with wild guide author Sarah Banks, the Nep Wilding Estate in West Sussex with Ranger Tom Burns, Wanstead Park in London with Manira Alley, who's exploring the city's 3,000 green spaces. I'm in the Chess Valley with the founder of Blaze Trails, Katie O'Neill Gutierrez, and Battersea Park in London with the adventurer Elise Wortley, who follows in the footsteps of female explorers of the past and who's just appeared in the TV series Alone, surviving in the Canadian wilderness. Being outside in nature is great fun, but it's also fantastic for our mental well-being. So I hope that the stories of the people I've spoken to will leave you buzzing with inspiration and ideas of how to fit even more of the joy of the outdoors into your everyday. Before we get to my first guest though, I wanted to thank the outdoor footwear company Merrill for kindly supporting this series. Their backing makes this podcast possible and they always allow me the freedom to find the people and stories I think are important to showcase. I also spent the summer in their Merrill Women's Speed Eco Waterproof Hiking Shoes, and they are seriously comfortable. Merrill have kindly offered listeners of The Outdoors Fix a 20% off discount on their products at merrill.co.uk. So just use the code OUTDOORS20, which is valid on one product per person from their website until the end of 2023. Anyway, back to the first story of Series 8. My guest in this episode is Carla Corey, a mountain leader who's also the course director for Black Girls Hike, a Duke of Edinburgh assessor, paddle sports leader and Merrill Hiking Club organiser. But she lives in London and she used to be a science teacher. Carla is also one of only two black female mountain leaders in the UK and she's on course with her training to be the only black female winter mountain leader. Carla took me to a beautiful park just minutes from her home in London and we recorded the episode sitting on the grass within sight of a herd of fallow deer. Someone who's unafraid of following her heart, 
Carla's story left me feeling inspired about having the courage to follow your dreams at any age and the impact of contributing to the outdoors community. Don't miss Carla's tips at the end of the episode for lesser known spots to explore around the UK, as well as how to start out and secure work if you're interested in becoming a mountain leader. So let's get on with the episode and here's Carla. Carla, hello. Thank you so much for coming on the Outdoors Fix podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Um, I've, I've listened to your podcast and I've you know, been amazed at some of the, the stories that people have had to tell. So yeah, I'm delighted to, to be on. Well, that's kind of you and I've been so excited about chatting to you. And today you have been such a sweet person and you've brought, well, tell me what you've brought. So I've brought some elderflower cordial to go without um, alcohol-free Prosecco. This elderflower cordial you made from foraging the elderflower flowers here? I did absolutely yes. In so Dagenham Park? In Dagenham Park yeah I, um, I forage them every year it's I, I take some of the flowers earlier on in the year and then later on I'll use the, uh, some of the berries. What a treat this is. Cheers! Oh this is very lovely. That is the nicest drink I've ever had on a recording. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you that's so sweet. So Carla for the listeners then we've said we're in Dagenham Park but if you can just describe where Dagenham Park is and exactly where we're sitting right now. Yeah, so Dagenham Park is in the London Borough of Havering. It is locally known as the Manor um, because of uh, the old manor house that used to sit in these grounds. So we're currently sitting uh, on the edge of a meadow and uh, a woodland and we're overlooking um, some beautiful trees. We've got oaks, we've got beech and um, hazel. And underneath uh, one of the oak trees, we've got a group of fallow deer. Yes. Which, uh, um, this is their home. There are uh, lots of deer in the area, uh, probably about six to 800 of wow. them. Um, it's reminiscent of Richmond Park, but a completely other end of London. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a really beautiful spot. I've never been here before. And again, London continually surprises me about what is actually within its area, you know, in terms of the green spaces. Yeah, we're really lucky with, with yeah. this green space. And um, yeah, it's two minutes away from London's Ring Road, the M25, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't know it. Well, no, you can't hear it, can no. you? So, I mean, it's a pretty, pretty awesome spot. And it's a beautiful summer's day, which is one of the very rare, beautiful summer's days we've had. This year, for sure, <laughs> yeah. But Carla, you are a mountain leader, and that is someone who is qualified to take groups in the moorlands and mountains of the UK and Ireland. Yeah. But also, people might be surprised to hear that you live in London. <laughs> which doesn't sometimes people would think that doesn't go together but you are obviously a mountain leader can you take me through what a sort of typical week is for you and what kind of mountain leading and what the responsibilities are and, and what you have to do yeah so um i obviously there's no mountains in in the flatlands of london so my work uh, although i live here my work is in different parts of the country so for example uh, if, last week um, I spent some of my time in the Peak District uh, and then I headed uh, over to Snowdonia where I was working with a group of, uh, group of women teaching the navigation uh, in, in the mountains in Snowdonia. Yeah, so are you obviously you're travelling quite a lot as part of your job. What would be a typical week, do you think? So I would typically uh, tend to work, most mostly it's weekends, so Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday is my probably my main working working days and I would travel to the lakes or Snowdonia or the peaks or Scotland. Um, that's probably the best part of a day. 
in just traveling uh, and then three days of work and then travel home and then I have my rest when I get back home. It's quite a busy lifestyle, but you're leading people, you're teaching navigation. So what is that? Like day walks? Is that overnight? It's a combination depending on on the groups that I'm working with. So it can be a one day course or um, a one day guided walk, or it could be something over over several days, a multi-day, including uh, camping, um, sometimes wild camping. Uh, as part of that. And what are the types of people that you're working with at the moment? I mainly work with uh, groups of women uh, and young people. Um, so I do a lot of work with Black Girls Hike. Yes. Uh, I'm doing, uh, I've been working with them for the last two years um, where I'm course directing some of their um, hill and mountain skills courses. And at the moment uh, that's been for uh, some of their volunteer walk leaders uh, to skill them up, develop their personal skills, um, develop their navigation skills, their planning skills, uh, so they can take those things away um, into what they're doing um, locally in their own areas. So one of the other things that I'm, I'm a, I've been working on this year, I'm working on a project with uh, Merrill, with the Merrill Hiking Club, and they are aiming to encourage more women to get in, out into the outdoors. So I've been planning and organising um, hikes for, for women all over the UK. So we started with some hikes down south and um, we've headed to the Lake District and we're heading to the Peak District this weekend. Um, but it's been really lovely to see women. Most of them are coming on their own without friends or family. And for a lot of them, it's out of their comfort zone. And it's been really lovely to see that they've been more confident and returning for other mm. other hikes. So is this all year round or is like, you know, this time of year, summer, you're, it must be your busiest, right? Yeah, so kind of from um, March till October is kind of my working window. The summer is particularly busy, uh, and then yeah, it's kind of a, a bit of a plan plan B for winter. <laughs> yeah, but you're you're, tra- you're training to be a winter mountain leader. I am. So yeah, so my um, my winters at the moment will be focused on um, trying to achieve um, my winter mountain leader qualification. So last winter I spent most of the winter in Scotland. Wow. Um, yeah, to trying to develop my personal skills to get me ready for the next stage of, uh, of, of that um, in terms of where I go to in, in, in that qualification. Yeah, so when you hopefully get the qualification for winter mountain leading, does that mean that obviously you're just qualified to be out when it's snowy and in those conditions? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. winter mountain leader, it doesn't necessarily mean the, the winter. Uh, likewise, summer mountain leaders can work in December if, if there's no ice and, and snow on the ground. So, yeah, it's to do with the conditions of the ground and rather than the actual time of year. I want to get into your, the story of how you became a mountain leader in a second, but when was it that you qualified? I qualified in 2019, so four years ago. Yeah, okay. Well, I would love to go back a little bit and find out how this all started because when you were younger, well, you grew up in a place that wasn't outdoorsy, didn't you? Very much so. Yeah, I grew up in Tottenham, which is inner city London. Um, definitely not outdoorsy at all. Um, my family weren't an outdoorsy type of family. Um, we did have a garden and I sp- you know, spent a lot of time in it. We were lucky to have a garden. We lived in kind of social housing, so we were really fortunate to have a garden. But yeah, we, we didn't go to the countryside or uh, you know, I didn't really know what the countryside was. 
it was only in books, you know, Enid Blyton books, the famous five that I used to read. Um, people had, had children that had adventures that um, I was a bit inspired by. Yeah, so how did your relationship with the outdoors start? It started actually with a friend of mine um, inviting me to join her in the Air Cadets. So I, I went along not knowing what to expect and that actually changed my life. And what age were you then? I was about 12 or 13. Yeah. And we was given so many opportunities. Again, it was in Tottenham, um, and there were people like, like me that came from, uh, it was a very deprived area. Just giving these young people, giving us opportunities to see parts of the world that, parts of the UK that we wouldn't perhaps have seen um, on our own and with our, our families. So we went on expeditions. Um, I did my Duke of Edinburgh through the, the Air Cadets. And the Duke of Edinburgh Award for anyone who, if you can explain what it is. Yeah, yeah. so it's an award for, for young people, for young people from kind of 13 to 25 um, in different levels where um, later there's four sections. I think most people that do know the Duke of Edinburgh know it as an expedition and camping, but it isn't just that. It's about developing a new skill. It's about a, a physical section, volunteering to give something back to the community. And then the expedition is, is part of part of that. So you were able to do that at school? I was able to do that with the Air Cadets. With the Air Cadets? So with the Air Cadets. It was very, uh, very much subsidised, um, something that you know wouldn't, definitely wouldn't have been able to afford to do um, had it not been through them. Um, my family just weren't in a position to, to do that. But yeah, that opened my eyes to the outdoors and I just loved it. Yeah. It was just this joy of being outside, the joy of the green space. I, d I just knew that that's where what I wanted, you know, where I wanted to be, and, and that's where I was happiest. Do you remember where that was when you had that realization? Which part of the country? Uh, it was Tottenham Marshes, believe what it or it? not. <laughs> believe it or not, it was Tottenham Marshes. It was probably about a, you know twenty-minute walk from my house, and I wouldn't have known it existed had it not been for the cadets. It was wild and rugged, and it just felt like I was having an adventure. And it was, it was close to my house and I, how did I not know about this? And this is what I feel about this place um, where I live, you know, where I live now um, in, in a place called Harold Hill, uh, which is, you know, two minutes away from where we're sitting in, uh, in Dagenham Park in the manor. Um, there's so many people nearby that don't know this place exists yeah. and I, I know I want to shout it from the rooftops like come and join us here yeah. it's beautiful yeah so you obviously when you were in your teens then had this revelation about the outdoors so how did that go through your you know your 20s did you kind of keep I mean obviously you had to leave the air cadets I assume yeah I left the air cadets at about 19 um, but I continued walking in the outdoors. My first ever holiday alone was um, to the Lake District. I remember getting, getting a, a rucksack from the charity shop and getting the train to up to the Lake District and backpacking and, and hiking around. But yes, yeah, so I continued walking and, and, and running in the outdoors and I've, I've done that kind of from, from then up till now. And what is it about the outdoors that you, you know, makes you feel really good and that you've loved to sort of continue throughout your life? It, I feel connected to nature. I think we're all connected to nature and I think we become disconnected in our busy, busy lives. And I think when I get outdoors, I just feel part of it. I feel part of the world. I feel part of this beautiful uh, space. And you look at birds and mammals and insects and the flora and fauna that are here. And it's just so beautiful and there's beauty everywhere you look and I just feel connected to that.
Oh, that's wonderful. I mean, particularly on a day like this as yeah, well. Yeah. So you obviously you kept doing trips out to the Lake District and, and in your holidays, but you were working in the city. Yeah, I was. I left school after not doing so well in my A-levels and got a job working for an insurance company and working in insurance sales in the city. Yeah, it was a case of having to having to work to, to pay um, to pay bills, um, and I, I then ended up being quite good at insurance sales and went into management and and stayed there for, for quite a long time until I got pregnant. I had my first first son, and uh, was really motivated by my career. Um, and went back. He was twelve weeks old, and I went back. Wow. I had a promotion while I was on maternity leave. Went back yeah. really really soon, and. Um, and it's only as really he started to to grow up and I did reevaluated my life and realised that actually this is perhaps working in the city and all the good things that go with that, like the social aspect of it outside of work. Yeah. It, 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 it no longer was the thing that interested me. I wanted to come home to my, my child, so but I had to work. It was a case of having to. And then I had my, my second child and I decided that I, I wasn't going to go back to, to that job. I was going to find a way to do something different. I, I realised that um, I didn't want that life anymore. Um, so, so what was that that you sort of thought about? I mean, it's quite daunting, isn't it, when you leave one career and thinking yeah. about what you want to do next? I didn't have a clue what I wanted yeah. to do. I really didn't have a clue what I wanted to do. I just knew that I didn't want to do that anymore. So I decided to, uh, I think, being at home, um, it was the first time, really, since leaving school that I'd had some... Some, some time to really think about, well, what is it I enjoy? Yeah. What is it that I want to do? So I, I, I hadn't been to university. Um, I really enjoy learning. And I thought, well, well, maybe I'll go to university and do a degree. So, so that's what I did. I, I went and, um, you know, as an animal lover um, and someone that's curious about the world, I decided to do an animal science degree. I mean, that is such a change for the city. I mean, and also you had two children at home. I did have two children. I had a very supportive, um, very supportive husband who continues to be my biggest cheerleader. Um, But yeah, without without him, um, we haven't got family close by. So yeah, without him, it wouldn't wouldn't have been possible. But yeah, he he supported me, and I did like a full time uh, degree. Uh, Again, still with no no end goal. I didn't really know where I wanted to, to to go with that. Um, but I had some like, really lovely opportunities whilst doing my degree. I worked a uh, volunteer for the Essex Wildlife Trust mm. and I end- ended up working with the education section and working with school refusers and working with young people. And I was like, oh, I actually quite like this. I actually, you know, I can connect with young people. Um, so it was that that planted the seed about perhaps becoming a teacher at the end of my degree so uh, that kind of that then snowballed and I uh, realised that yeah that was probably the direction that I wanted to go into. And then you became a science teacher for 14 years. I did. Yeah. <laughs> I did become a science teacher and being a teacher was an absolute honour. I absolutely loved it. I've worked in, I worked in two schools mainly. One of them actually is behind us uh, uh, on the edge of the manor. Um, but yeah, I, I loved teaching. I loved um, being in the classroom. I loved sharing my knowledge with young people, learning, you know, sometimes at the same time as, as young people, learning new things, science. There's always new things happening in, in science. But I absolutely loved it. And then, am I right in saying that through that job as a teacher, that that's where the outdoors really came back into your life? Yeah, I think I was 
always grateful for the opportunity that I, I had as a young person with the Duke of Edinburgh. And in the, the first school I worked in, they, they didn't have a Duke of Edinburgh set up, um, but it was something that I'd heard about that other schools did. And so I helped to get that set up in, mm. uh, in that school. And it was brilliant just to, again, we just started uh, with, with the Bronze Award and getting young people to get outdoors and uh, in, enjoy being outdoors and seeing, seeing green spaces that were perhaps not too far away from, from where they, they lived. And, and that has just that evolved throughout um, throughout my time teaching, and again in both schools, and particularly in the the last school that I, I worked at um, in a deprived area where children were, were like me when you know when I was growing up, families just didn't have didn't have the means perhaps to give them opportunities to um, to go and, to go into the countryside and go and see places like the South Downs or um, to go to Devon or uh, you know to go up to to the mountains, it, it just it wasn't heard of. Some of the children that live uh, in this local area hadn't even been to Dagenham Park. Right. Um, so, yeah. you know, they just hadn't had the, the opportunity. So my school were really, really supportive in, in help, helping me to help young people to take part in the Duke of Edinburgh. And um, they're supportive in terms of time, they're supportive in terms of financial, to remove the, the financial barriers that young people have to do in the Duke of Edinburgh. I know in some schools it's you know it's hundreds of pounds to, to take part in the Duke of Edinburgh but um, yeah my school was quite supportive and and, and using some of the, the school's budget to, to, to support young people um, to remove those barriers uh, to taking part in the Duke of Edinburgh. Oh it's fantastic so through that is that how you started your mountain leader yeah. journey? Yeah it was so yeah. we were running the bronze and silver awards and in order to run the gold award we had kind of two options so we could either outsource it to other companies to run the award um, or we could get the qualifications in-house so again my school was really supportive in uh, helping me and a, and a colleague on our journey to become mountain leaders so that then we could um, take our groups from bronze to silver and right up to to gold I mean that's fantastic because the gold award it ends in a in a three night four day expedition doesn't it, does, it yeah. in the mountains and for the school to support you getting those qualifications is incredible because it, it takes a long time to train to be a mountain leader. It really does take a long time, yeah. particularly when you don't live in the mountains. <laughs> yeah. So you know, were you so you were given time off to go and do the do the training? No. Or? So they financially supported us, yeah. but in terms of time, we were using our own time. Right. So I would go, uh, I would leave here on a on a Friday, at, you know, three thirty, and head straight up the the M6 to Snowdonia or the, or the lakes and spend yeah. the weekend there, and then come back. Sunday, Sunday night, and I, I would do that pretty much every weekend for nearly a year. Yeah. Um, so it was a big commitment on your part. Yeah, as well. absolutely. So it, yeah. it worked both ways. So I was I was committed in in achieving the award, uh, given the time that it, it needed and the effort needed, um, and they supported me financially. So what was it about that? kind of gaining that qualification while you were still working yeah. at the school what was it that really hooked you why did you enjoy that that side of you know it, I've always walked in the in the mountains but it just gave me confidence that I could take other people in the mountains yeah. and show people what I see and when you go to the mountains you see things you can take pictures but you, you don't get that depth you don't get the, the awe and wonder that mountains give you and 
I want to take people, I want to show people, look, look what <laughs> look what I can see, like no picture I've ever taken and can show them. And yeah, yeah every person that I have taken, it, they do get that feeling, it is, you know, that awe and wonder of the mountain. Yeah, you must get a big buzz from it, because I mean, I imagine, like you were saying, those kids when you were taking them out into the big mountains doing their gold award. Yeah, do you remember what some of them said? Yeah, or what they yeah. Were like? well, we'd do the, 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 the bronze quite locally, normally in, in Essex or maybe in Epping, and then head to the South Downs to do their silver, and that was a, a big wow. Like, wow, look at those mountains. And I'd be thinking in my head, you haven't seen anything yet. Yeah. You, wait, you wait until you get to the lakes or Snowdonia. But um, I remember the first time driving, we were driving up in the minibus, and as we approached the mountains, it just, you know, there was a load of chatter in the back, and then it just went silent. And they were just like, <laughs> just, yeah, you could almost feel like this wow. Um, but yeah, they were mind-blown and they they loved it and you know I've had uh, young people that you know after their Duke of Edinburgh have gone back to the mountains with their friends or family and uh, and you know still enjoying the mountains today. That's a wonderful thing to be able to do and to show kids that and open the door for them. Yeah yeah and that's it it is opening the door and uh, giving them the helping them to get the skills and um, that they can safely do that on their own is um, is lovely, and then maybe they'll pass that on to other people. Yeah. So, what was the point? Do you remember when you thought I actually want to do the mountain leading side full time and, and to give up teaching? Yeah, it was, it was a, a big a big decision really. Um, there's a couple of things that made it a little bit easier. One was my children; they'd grown up and all intents and purposes left home as they weren't relying on me rushing back and um, and sorting things out for them. Covid was another factor gave me again some time and space to think about next steps in my life and physically I'm not getting any younger I felt and I thought if I'm going to be a mountain leader work in the outdoors there is going to be a time where I physically are not going to be able to do that but at the moment where I'm fit and healthy I can I can probably go back to teaching if being a freelance mountain leader doesn't work out I can go back to teaching I'm always going to be a qualified teacher um, and physically something was to happen that in, it meant I couldn't um, walk up mountains anymore then I could again I still have the skills of uh, and qualifications as, te- as a teacher. Yes yeah, so that was a good insurance kind of a yeah. bit, of, bit of sort of confidence that you could you know, make it work yeah. somehow. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, what was it like when you gave in your notice and you thought... I was devastated. It was the children that mm. was the, the hardest thing because there's, there's never a good time to, uh, to to leave a class because when one, one year group gets to the end of their kind of school career, you, there's, there's always others that you've been teaching in the younger years and always feel a bit, a bit like you're abandoning them. And, um, yeah, so it was a bit of a, a wrench to, to say goodbye, but I knew that I, I, it was it was it was a good time for me, and I needed to think about me and, the, and, and my life. And I'd given a lot of my life mm. is to helping you know helping others. It was it was my time. So it's a big new chapter, and I think part of the I mean it might have felt a bit intimidating in trying to find the work to you know pack up your freelance mountain leader schedule yeah because um you know did you have any threads to to work that before you left the position no no is the answer (laughs) I had no work lined up there was an opportunity my so my school (laughs) my school were really kind they they said we'll 
if you're a year sabbatical, right. you can go away and, uh, and and do what you want, and um, <clears throat> and if you want to come back, your job's here. So I was like, brilliant. Again, that's another mm. bit bit of security. So I, I went away and I, I didn't have any work. So I um, I got a job running a campsite. Where was that? It was in Broxbourne on the, the River Lee. So oh, okay. So east, uh, sort of out, just outside of just London. Just outside of London. Yeah. Whilst doing that, we was on the River Lee. I did my paddle sport leader qualification. Mm. So I was developing kind of the, the things that I was able to do and able to offer outdoor organisations. And um, I, I'd, I'd done a little bit of work with um, with individuals, just you know, a few days here and a few days there. Um, and then I came across Rianne from Black Girls Hike. Yeah. And um, the founder. Yeah. They were looking for a, a black mountain leader, black female mountain leader, and there isn't many of them. So. <laughs> well, you were telling me that you're only one of two female black mountain leaders yeah. in the country. Yeah. So uh, the the statistics, are, you know, quite, quite shocking, really. Yeah. I asked for some data from mountain training, and uh, so since the inception of the award in the 60s there's been about 25,000 people roughly that have uh, achieved the summer mountain leader award uh, of those uh, approximately like 20 just over 20,000 men and 5,000 women so uh, clearly a, a male dominated mm. award um, and out of that in the recorded data um, there are only two black female mountain leaders and one and of them one is, is me yeah. wow yeah, so, um, yeah, <laughs> quite sh- quite shocking. I mean, there may be others. I don't know if there are any others that are out there. I would love to meet them. <laughs> I really would love to meet them. And in terms of, like, winter mountain leaders, uh, at the moment, again, based on the, the latest data, um, there are no black male or female winter mountain leaders recorded. Um, that People have to volunteer that information. So there, right. there may well be um, others, you know, but again, I don't, I don't know. It's still an incredibly, incredibly small, small number. number. Yeah. 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 And, and so Rianne reached out to you. Yeah, so she re- reached out to me as a, a black mountain leader to, to see if, there's, if we could work together. And uh, so I've worked with, with them and uh, some of their groups uh, leading some of their hikes. And more recently, I, uh, they've become a mountain uh, training provider for uh, some mountain training approved courses, so Hiller Mountain Skills. So I'm the course director uh, for those, and I've been running those courses. And it's been an absolute joy to, um, to uh, work with women that are really keen and eager to develop their personal skills, learn to navigate, use map and compass, learn to, to, to be safe in the the Hiller Mountains and give them confidence to be able to go away and to, to, to do more of that themselves. Well, it's fantastic that you're doing that and you know that there's so many, hopefully, there'll be so many more women like you going through and becoming mountain well, that's, leaders. That's the aim. That, yeah. that, that is the aim. Yeah, I don't want to be one of two black women mountain leaders no. in the UK. I want there to be to be lots. So yeah, I, I'm you know, really, really enjoying working with these women and if there's any way that I can help other black women that are, um, are, are, wanting, are thinking about that, that route to becoming qualified in the outdoors, then I, I would be more than happy to, to help anyone that wanted to. 
Absolutely. And so obviously that is an incredible purpose that you've had and you found. So was that one of the reasons why you then decided not to go back after the sabbatical? Yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah. And, and and I'd also started to get from word of mouth. There was mm. uh, starting to get lots of other opportunities. I was still doing some Duke of Edinburgh work, um, working as I'm, I'm a Duke of Edinburgh assessor. So um, I was able to, to get work doing that all over the country, uh, getting work as a, a paddle sport leader. Uh, so yeah, so there was, you know, once I started working, it, it snowballed and it was, yeah, lots of word of mouth and uh, people contacting me. It's been, I've been quite lucky, uh, people contacting me to, to, to work with them and uh, I've had lots of, lots of opportunities. So it's been three years since you left school then and a whole new life for you. It is a new life, yeah. yeah. It's a life that I'm loving. Well, tell me about the balance then. So like you say, you know, your husband's been incredibly supportive. Is there a tricky balance though there with, you know, being away so much and um, having to travel a lot? It's a bit like feast and famine, I say to him, <laughs> to him really. But as I said, my children no longer live at home, so I don't have to rush back to, uh, to help them with homework and uh, to, to make sure that uh, you know, meals are, that the fridge is full or anything. My husband is his own person. He's more than capable of doing, you know, cooking for himself and and uh, you know he, he does yeah there's periods of time that I'm you know away for for, for long periods of time but, but then there's equally I, I, I manage my diary and I plan my diary so that I am home so there's been things like birthdays that I've made sure that I don't I block out work I've got my silver wedding anniversary coming up oh, in, in, in in August and you know I've blocked that out and um, it's nice to be able to to be able to say no I'm not working that weekend or I'm not doing that. Well, I mean that's the lovely part of the freelance life isn't yeah. it is that control yeah. which I imagine yes I mean although schools get some long holidays you're very rigid with the school yeah. Kind of yeah. year aren't Absolutely. you usually. Yeah. Do you find that you have time for your own outdoors adventures? Yeah I do yeah I um, I, I spend you know nearly all my time out, out outdoors so um, I am a, a runner. That's what I do in um, in, in my spare time. It's what I've always done, yeah. and I work towards um, different events and races. So um, I've taken part in lots of marathons, and um, I'm currently working. I've, I don't know what I've done, but yeah. I've signed up for uh, the Austria Ironman in, in June next year. Oh so my, my all my spare time is, I think, <laughs> going to. Because an Ironman is a marathon running. Yeah, is it, what's the cycle? How long's the cycle? 112 miles. Oh my god, how long to swim? Uh, is just over two miles. <sighs> that is a challenge. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I taught myself to swim when I was seven or eight, so yeah. uh, a long, long time ago. And I, I thought I could swim pretty, pretty well, but I did my first triathlon last year, and uh, I, I spent a lot of time in the pool trying to, to get faster at swimming because there's a cut-off time for the right. swim and I um, was really worried I thought if I can just get out of the water I'll be fine on the bike and I know I can run um, so I invested a lot of time I just couldn't get any any faster so I just made the cut-off time <laughs> in that and uh, so yesterday I went to uh, I, I thought I'm if I'm gonna do this full Ironman I'm gonna need some help um, so I had to uh, I've had my first swimming lesson <laughs> oh my goodness oh, <laughs> try and undo like 40 years of uh, bad habits <laughs> You've had several stages to your career and each time they've been quite big changes and that's quite intimidating for many of us making big changes in our life. Has each one given you more confidence? Yeah, I think so. I think it, 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 
looking at the time it didn't feel like it was a big brave decision um, it was something that I felt that I had to do um, I had to make a change for my sake or, or my family's sake and I think it's it, it was important to do so I think things that made it easier to make those changes was having a supportive partner that really helped someone that um, will have your back and just not being scared that in the, financially it's always a worry to, to change from one career to another particularly if you're earning a salary or your what you're earning has to contribute to um the, the household's outgoings um, but it's been it's, it's about for me it was like well i will do anything if this doesn't work out i can do other things and it's it's okay saying that you can do other things it's uh, you don't need necessarily need, even need to go backwards into the, the career you were before there's other work out there. I, I, I'm not afraid of. I'm not afraid of hard work. Um, I'm not afraid of it, doing whatever it takes to earn money if that's what I needed to do, even if that necessarily wasn't what I wanted to do. And so it's about knowing that that there, there are ways of making money if you needed to. Do you think that you will always stay in London? Um, well, there's no a- actual reason for for us to be living in London now. Now our children, you know, live away. I would love to move. My, my ideal place to, to live would be uh, Snowdonia. It, yeah. There's a, a word in Welsh that's it's hiraith. Have you heard of that before? No. Hiraith is this yearning or longing to be in a place. Oh. And I feel that about Snowdonia and I don't feel that about anywhere else that I've been in the world. That's really interesting. And um, as I drive up the, the A5 and I, as I approach uh, into the National Park, I get this feeling that I, I, I don't feel about anywhere else in the world. I don't feel about Tottenham. I don't feel about Harold Hill where I now live. Um, I don't even feel, feel that about the lakes or, or Scotland. I, I just feel that about, about that part of Wales. And it's a lovely word. Um, we, don't have a, we don't have the equivalent in, in English. Yeah. Um, See, I would live there. I think for my husband, that's a bit too, <laughs> a, a bit too far away um, from city life. He's a he's a city boy um, and a bit of a creature of of habit. So, in in his own time, he'll make a deci- You know, he'll make the decision um, when he's ready to to move. And I think perhaps a good compromise would be somewhere central, or perhaps the peaks. That, yes. So um, you get there more easily. So yes, yeah, so I can I can get to all the areas that I'm working more easily and we're still close to a city that we can get fulfill all of our city needs. <laughs> Hirith. That's actually Hirith. a beautiful it's, word. Yeah, a beautiful word. Hirith, yeah. yeah. What is it about Snowdonia? I, I think I think the mountains and the area it's compact. It's it's a small national park with different types of mountains. There's like really rugged pointy ones and rounded ones and, and there's beautiful lakes that I can wild swim and friendly and welcoming. And yeah, I just, I just love, there's nothing that I don't like about it, apart from it being so far. <laughs> so Carla, obviously you're now in a place where you're outdoors pretty much all the time um, from having grown up in Tottenham. What do you think the impact of the outdoors has been on your life? Um, I think the outdoors has given me um, purpose. It's given me sanity, moments of sanity, where I felt that, you know, moments of stress and anxiety, it allows a decompression of that. 
p.m. It's given me a, a new a new sense a new sense of of life and a, a, you know um, I feel rejuvenated. I feel young again, um, and I'm excited about this stage of my career. So Carla, who are the three people who have inspired your outdoors adventures? If I was to pick three, three people, one of them goes back to my childhood and I spoke earlier on about um, being in the cadets and mm. one of them was a man called Phil Seddon. Mm. Now Phil was, uh, or Mr Seddon, from, uh, which he called <laughs> at the time, he was an ex-army major who uh, became a civilian instructor in the uh, cadet unit that I was part of and he was really really strict. Um, he was, even for the back then, he was not politically correct at all but he saw something in me and other young people in the cadets that he wanted to help us to open our eyes and open that door for us and um, to have those opportunities in the, in the outdoors and he he's passed away now um, unfortunately but he left a legacy and he, he's donated a lot of money to the air cadet unit oh. in Tottenham uh, in a trust and this 20 years later that money is still being used to help young people in Tottenham in the, that air cadet unit to have adventures in the outdoors. So, what a legacy. Yeah, absolutely. So Phil Seddon. Wow. <laughs> oh, wow. How about your second person? And the other one is uh, a lady called Fiona Oakes. Now Fiona is a, um, a long distance runner, she's an elite runner. She had cancer, uh, she lost a kneecap and despite that she um, has managed to uh, become an elite runner uh, wow. She's a world record holder uh, for the fastest marathons on both poles. Wow. Uh, yeah, she's amazing. And on top of that, all her training she does uh, alongside running an animal sanctuary. So she runs that full time. She has a lot of a lot of animals that she looks after, and she's a retained firefighter. So she's like juggling <laughs> oh so many things and being elite and being an elite athlete. So she she inspires me. Does she inspire you in the way that you, you know, that you, ju you can juggle a lot of different things? Yes. How does and, she inspire uh, you? Yeah, she, that you can, you can do a lot of things and you can overcome difficulties. Yeah. Um, and when things are, are hard, you, you've got to think, she thinks uh, of her purpose. What, what is her why? Why is she doing it? When she's uh, having to, to, to train after a full day of, of work, her purpose is to get her message across about, um, veganism and, and being strong and uh, on a on a plant-based diet and and getting uh, getting awareness for the animals in her care mm. wow what woman and your third person and uh, my third person is a friend of mine called joe and joe's brilliant joe and i have been on a, a few adventures together we we did uh, our mountain leader journey together i met joe and we were colleagues um teaching in the same school and she had come from a background where she had climbed loads of um, really impressive mountains all over the world, solo, wow. um, and she had um, worked for Greenpeace. She had been, you know, to places in the world that I that I would love to go, and uh, she continues to inspire me today. More recently, did Lands End to John O'Groats on her own, walked wow. it, um, and, and now she lives in Mongolia. She's teaching there, but she's still she's learning. She's uh, learning to snowboard, learning to paraglide, and doing some adventurous stuff. So. Oh my goodness what amazing people you picked yeah. thank you so much and also it's just so lovely to hear those different experiences and uh, 
and to think of the opportunities in life, eh? Absolutely. Wow, thank you. So then, Carla, tips then. There's so many things that I could ask you. What are some of the things do you think about if people want to become a mountain leader and uh, they're worried and maybe they've got the qualification uh, or they're preparing for it and they're worried about getting the work? What have you, what, what sort of tips do you have for them? Yeah, so I can only speak from my experience as a freelance mountain leader, but I think initially it's, um, it's important that you have everything in place that means you can safely work. So have your DBS, your criminal record check, yep. um, have your first aid, have your insurance, and make sure you're clear about what your insurance covers you. So how many people can you take out, right, yep. for example? That's really important. Social media is, is, is brilliant, so there's groups on Facebook, for example, like the Freelance Outdoor Instructors and the Training Mountain Leaders that are a, a really lovely resource for people looking for work opportunities that are, are often posted there. Um, but once you start working with an organisation, the chances are that you'll be invited back for, for future work, so it's getting your foot in the, in the door mm. and taking that opportunities. Now, for those people that are uh, not even qualified yet, there, there are ways that you can start building up your work portfolio even before you're qualified. So some companies will take on trainees to work alongside qualified, qualified staff. Uh, so again, look out for those opportunities on those groups. I think it's important to decide on what type of work that you want. Mm. Um, do you want some challenge activity? So you are, are you super fit and want to do things like the three peak, the three peak yep. challenge or the Welsh 3000s? Or do you want to do Duke of Edinburgh working with young people? Do you want to do multi, uh, multi-day events? And then seek out those opportunities. That's really good advice. Decide on where you want to work. Um, maybe like have a radius um, from where you're based um, and then um, that you'll be t- prepared to travel for a day's work, for example, and then perhaps have another radius for where you'll be prepared to travel uh, from your base for two days or three days. So that way, and I've made that mistake, uh, living in London and and I've travelled three hours to the Peak District for one day's work and then three hours home. So that's... It wasn't worth my while. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so decide on your radius where, from where you, where you're based, where you're prepared, uh, where you're prepared to work, and then I think have a plan for winter. Yes. So most of your work is going to be between kind of March, April, and September, October. Um, now, if you've had enough work over the, the summer and you've managed to manage your money and save money, then you might be fortunate enough to not have to work over the winter. Most um, outdoor instructors do need to work and have a plan B over the winter. Yeah. So, um, you know, decide on, on what it is that you might want to do. Some people work in, you know, temp, temp jobs in the post office or driving yeah. or, you know, there's a whole host of, of jobs that you can do temporarily. Oh, those are brilliant tips. Thank you. So useful, I'm sure loads of people will get a lot from that. What about some places around the UK that you really love going on outdoors adventures that may be a sort of less familiar to people? Have you got any suggestions? Yeah, uh, if you're, if, if like me, you love Snowdonia, I, I tend to stay away from the honeypot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, the honeypot mountains and go to the mountains that people um, tend to tend to ignore um, so I love there's a small mountain called Knicht uh, it's about 700 meters like a, a pointy top which is really really nice but then um, over by um, Beth Gellert there's a mountain called Mole Hebog yes. 
nobody goes nobody goes there you can have the mountain pretty much to, your, to yourself i've done some work with Merrill this year and have done some some day walks with, with groups one of the fa my favorite walks is um in, in in essex actually it takes uh takes you up to leon sea oh. which is uh yeah, it's a countryside walk um and then it takes you up to up to the coast and then back along the coastal path which oh, is yeah. it's beautiful oh lovely oh there's some lovely suggestions there <laughs> Carla, it's been so lovely to chat to you and thank you for taking me to beautiful Dagenham Park, which I've never been to before, and giving me this homemade elderflower cordial. I mean, honestly, dream day. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank oh, you for having thank me. thank you. And we're going to continue our walk back to the cars, but um, I've just absolutely loved it. It's been a privilege to speak to you and keep doing what you're doing. It's amazing. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Carla's episode. Stick around right to the end of the episode for the calming minute of beautiful birdsong I recorded in the outdoors recently. To see photos and watch snippets of my recording with Carla, head to Instagram at The Outdoors Fix. You'll also find Carla on Instagram at Carla Runs on Plants. And did you know that The Outdoors Fix is now also available as a book? It was my big project last year and it's packed full of 30 of my podcast guest stories tips and beautiful photographs to show you how you can get outdoors more and feel the benefits. And the Outdoors Fix book is available to buy through the link in the podcast show notes, as well as on the Vertebrate Publishing website and in bookshops. Regular listeners of the Outdoors Fix will know that I end each episode with some sounds of nature. So now it's that time to take a short moment to relax and listen to some bird song that I recorded on the southwest coast. I hope you enjoy it. <laughs>